Welcome to the broadcast of uh, Better Together, Democrats and Republicans Who Love America, episode 85. So I know the timing kind of cut me off, but yeah, the Bigfoot myth. Several possibilities for that. Um, One is that it's a hoax, you know, a hoax, just something of legend that people invented that's funny and, you know, mysterious to think about. And then, you know, based off of that Native American lore and tradition, I can't remember the name of it, but it was in the last episode, that could be factual. It also could be pranksters that like to dress up in a costume and try to pretend to be Sasquatch and see if people notice them. That's absolutely possible. Um, easy enough to get a costume on to be hot, <laughs> you know, especially in the summer and, uh, you know, in South Carolina and all. And, you know, go through the Southeast pretending to be a monster. Um, sure, people would do that, of course, you know, just for novelty publicity and to get people to try to go to the park to raise money. I mean, of course. And then the third possibility that no, for it's real. It's absolutely real. And, you know, who's to say there isn't another humanoid offshoot of our evolutionary journey, where um, it's a humanoid type cousin type creature that lives in the national parks. Of which the government is aware of, the national and the state parks, as its habitat. But not a whole lot of evidence, as I said, just this footprint and this mythology and lore and legend uh, and sightings, but like actual DNA testing to see if it's like humanoid. I mean, you have to dart that thing, knock it out with anesthetic. Sorry, with this whatever type of, I don't know what you would do, some tranquilizer. And then you'd have to sedate it and then you'd have to take a, you know, sample DNA injection to analyze the blood. <laughs> Haven't got that far yet, right? <laughs> it's possible. Do I? What do I think? I think it's all of those things. I think people have capitalized on it to make it a hoax. I think it's kind of a fun gag. It gets people talking. It gets people going to the parks. And I also think it's probably true that it's a a different kind of subhuman species that lives in the national parks. (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't put it past our government, you know, with its wonderful transparency on all things UFO, not... (laughs) All things UFO, not at all. So, I mean, would it also be under that rather uh, auspice of secrecy? Sure. <laughs> oh, it's just interesting to report these as news, right? Okay. So more news going on here. I'm trying to just figure out what to really talk on. Hmm. There's so many climate change stories. I could do that right away. I like to do it in sections. Let's talk about China.
Daniel Coughlin yesterday. Love money. Bug Biden doubles down on his favorite Trump policy. <sighs> Trump tariffs. Wait, whoops. Let's go back. How the U.S. is cutting economic ties with China. <coughs> Bolstered by a strong bipartisan support, the Biden administration is pulling out all the stops to reduce America's dependency on China. Thank you. And while language may be less inflammatory, the current POTUS is being just as tough on Beijing as his predecessor. Thank you. Keep it going, Joe. Keep it going. Pressure on. From maintaining Trump's tariffs to new restriction for big tech companies, um, read on to discover the steps that U.S. is taking to decouple. <coughs> Got some dust in my throat. Economically from its target's largest trading partner. Trump tariffs. President Trump got the ball rolling in May 2018 when his administration posed sweeping tariffs on Chinese imports. According to the White House online archives, these measures were introduced by counter unfair trade practices, including dumping, discrimination, non tariff banner barriers, forced technology transfer, overcapacity, industrial subsidies that champion Chinese firms and make it impossible for many U.S. firms to compete on a level playing field. Excuse me. Decoupling tools. The tariffs have plenty of downsides and have sparked a bitter trade war that has hurt jobs, wages, production. However, these levies have turned out to be effective decoupling tools and have encouraged trade with other countries. They've also led to movements in U.S. manufacturing, which we'll discuss in more detail shortly. Much like his predecessor, President Joe Biden, is strongly committed to reducing America's reliance on Chinese products and supply chains. Biden tariffs. Given his wariness of Beijing and desire to pull away from China to safeguard America's national security and economic interests, it comes as no surprise that the current POTUS has maintained the Trump era tariffs. In fact, the Biden administration has retained tariff averaging 19.3% on two thirds for $335 billion worth of goods sourced from People's Republic. Negotiating leverage. With inflation skyrocketing, the president has been mulling over whether to scale back the tariffs in a bid to lower consumer prices, but many decide to keep them intact despite the allure of reducing inflation. While the Treasury has argued for a rollback, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai opposes any change in order to maintain leverage in negotiations with Beijing. Executive orders. During the time in office, President Trump issued 15 executive orders that either directly or indirectly impacted U.S. policy toward China, including several that promoted reducing trade ties. Picking up where the 45th POTUS left off, President Biden is also using his executive powers to help facilitate America's economic decoupling from People's Republic. By America, not long after his inauguration, President Biden issued Executive Order 14005, dubbed the By American Order, the initiative directs the U.S. government, which spends $600 billion a year on procurement, to concentrate its efforts on sourcing goods and services produced or offered in America rather than looking overseas. Local sourcing. Writing for the Georgetown Public Policy Review, Connor Nolan 
calls out the order a prime example of the Biden administration's commitment to reducing reliance on critical foreign supply chain. It's also, of course, part of the government's overall plan to make the U.S. less dependent on China, particularly when it comes to strategically sensitive technologies and materials. EO14017. President Biden followed up on the order in February 2021 by signing another initiative aimed at revitalizing American manufacturing and securing critical supply chains. So Executive Order 14017 called for an assessment of the nation's vital supply chains to identify vulnerabilities as well as a series of reports outlining how they could be brought home. critical supply chains. Since the order was issued, seven, seven cabinet agencies have identified weaknesses in America's critical supply chain and come up with multi-year strategies to address them. They include shoring of domestic supply of everything from semiconductors, lithium batteries, solar panels, wind turbines, which will minimize the country's alliance on China for these 21st century essentials. EO14032. Sticking with the theme of presidential directives, incumbent POTUS issued Executive Order 14032 on June 3, 2021. The order builds on one signed by President Trump in November 2020 that banned Americans from investing in businesses linked to the Chinese military, adding firms that are involved in China's massive surveillance industry to the list. Banned firms... Consequently, the number of targeted companies increased from 44 to 59. They include some of the country's biggest firms, from leading chip maker SMIC to telecom giants like China Mobile and much blind Huawei. And the powers that be in Washington, D.C., want even more control over U.S. investment in China. Outbound investment screening. Biden administration is supporting a proposal drafted by the bipartisan coalition of lawmakers that would require U.S. firms to notify the government before investing in a critical sector of China. The aim to be proposed legislation was titled the National Critical Capabilities Defense Act of 2022 is to prevent American companies from financing technologies that could give China the edge and leave the U.S. dependent on its exports. Thank you. Love it. Potential bans. The law would allow U.S. authorities to screen investments made into Chinese entities and expose bans, impose bans when necessary, expanding the scope of Executive Order 14032 significantly. But while proposal enjoys wide support on both sides of the aisle, it does have detractors. One such opponent is Republican Senator Pat Toomey, who is worried about the potential loss of trade and impact on inflation, among other issues. Blacklisted businesses. In a similar vein, the Department of Commerce has been busily adding Chinese companies to its entity and unverified list, which flags firms and presents a powerful threat to U.S. national security and restrict American companies from trading with them. Recent additions include Chinese biotech firms, wind and solar energy companies, semiconductor manufacturers, drone makers. As of February 2022, more than 100 companies have been highlighted as possible risks. Inbound investment screening. When it comes to screening Chinese investment in American business, the U.S. authorities have already got it down. Having been given real teeth by the Trump administration, the Treasury's Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. CFIUS has been increased, increasing its scrutiny of transactional transactions rather involving companies from the People's Republic. Thank you. This is all just music to my ears. 
This just makes me joyful. <laughs> Joy to the world. <laughs> Decouple from China. This is amazing. Prohibited sale. Last December, the company, the committee, stepped in to block the sale of semiconductor firm Magnachip to a Chinese private equity firm. Increasingly, Magnachip is actually based in South Korea, which minimal U.S. exposure. However, it's still deemed a U.S. entity by CFIUS as it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange and is incorporated in Delaware. The ban shows how far the committee is prepared to go to protect American economic interests and national security and to prevent the country from becoming beholden to China. Thank you. Oh, I've been waiting so long for this debrief. Stock delisting. Another sign that America isn't messing around when it comes to decoupling from China is the big push to delist Chinese stocks that fall foul of U.S. accounting practices, which is pretty much all of them. No longer willing to tolerate China's rule-breaking. Washington, D.C. is getting serious about enforcing regulations that require companies listed on the U.S. stock exchange to provide regulators with access to their financial audits. I love it. So great. Audit legislation. In December 2020, the Holding Foreign Companies Accountability Act, HVCAA, passed into law. The legislation was prompted by the Chinese authorities' refusal to allow U.S. regulators to inspect audits of Chinese firms listed in the U.S. and authorizes the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, to delist companies that it's unable to scrutinize. Perfect. Perfect. Questionable ownership. One of the stipulations of the law is that foreign companies listed in the U.S. aren't state-owned or controlled. This has long been a bone of contention, particularly in the case of Huawei. The tech corporation presents itself as an independent, privately-owned company, and yet has extremely strong ties to the Chinese military and the Communist Party. Mass delisting. Given the Chinese law prohibits U.S. regulators from accessing audits of homegrown companies for national security reasons, a standoff has developed. Beijing has until 2024 to change the law, and the companies can release the audits. If officials fail to comply or comp compromise can't be reached, every single one of the 248 Chinese firms listed in the U.S. could be removed from America's stock exchanges, which would represent an, an almighty economic decoupling. Let's do it. Do it! do it <laughs> please it's the best thing licenses pulled our other government agencies have been getting on the act too the federal communications commission fcc for example has revoked the licenses of several chinese telecom companies including china's mobile china's unicom with the latter banned from operating in the u.s in tw january 2022 Tough sanctions. U.S. sanctions are also helping to accelerate the decoupling of America and China. Imposed in the 20, in 2020 under the Trump administration and further enhanced under Biden, um, the sanctions are targeting businesses involving human rights abuses in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Tibet, as well as companies linked to Chinese military. Let's just say everywhere. Don't list three. List the, the entire continent, the entire, the entire arm that is China. Okay, the most impactful restrictions are enshrined in the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which, of course, China denies. We're tired of your projecting, deflection, and lying. <laughs> okay. okay, 
been saying that a lot lately. Xinjiang restrictions. The law, which was passed in December 2021, has come into effect in 20, June 2022, which requires U.S. importers to prove that goods they sourced from Xinjiang weren't produced under duress by members of the Uyghur minority. High burden of proof is necessary, which could end up vastly reducing trade with the region. The legislation has put in pressure on overseas importers that supply U.S. firms to sever ties with the firms in Xinjiang. Key legislation on top of the tariffs, investment screening, sanctions, and everything else. Three key pieces of legislation have been passed under presidential Biden, President Biden that should work wonders for reducing America's reliance on the People's Republic. Signed into law last November, the Once-in-a-Generation Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, providing $1.2 trillion in funding to update the national tired infrastructure. Chips and Science Act. Crucially, the White House guidance calls for all materials and projects covered by the legislation to be sourced from U.S. suppliers, with the explicit goal of reducing America's reliance on China for critical supplies. Also in play is the 280 billion chips and Science Act, where CHIP stands for Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors. The act came into law in early August with the aim of returning high-tech manufacturing to the U.S. to the detriment of the People's Republic. Funding Boost The Bipartisan Act provides bountiful funding to develop artificial intelligence, quantum computing, robotics, and other emerging technologies. Additionally, a whopping $52 billion had been earmarked to revive the domestic semiconductor industry. Most of the money is set to go on a new chip fabrication plant, as FABs as they're nicknamed. Competitive edge. China's producing increasing powerful chips. SMIC recently mastered the process of making advanced 7 NM semiconductors, so U.S. legislators are scrambling to retain America's competitive edge in the crucial sector. The third key piece of the legislation is the Bumper Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed in the Senate in August. Friendship Oh, friend-shoring moves. The act provides everything from tax breaks for domestic solar energy producers to grants for purchasing American-made electric vehicles. Needless to say, U.S. companies are pulling back from China in their droves. Advocated by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, friend-shoring or ally-shoring the sourcing of materials from and manufacturing in the countries that share the values is a growing trend. Yes, with U.S. firms increasingly ditching China in favor of nations such as Vietnam and India. Yep, that's exact, and preferably India. Okay, near and near and reshoring. Then there's nearshoring, which involves relocating production to neighboring countries, and reshoring, also referred to as onshoring, which involves returning sourcing and manufacturing to the U.S. A recent survey by digital tech companies, um, Comp Corporation ABB, found that 70 percent of U.S. businesses are looking to bring their production facilities home or closer to at home, at least. Intel, for example, is a major beneficiary of the Chips and Science Act, announcing in January it will invest up to 100 billion in the building the world's largest chip-making complex in Ohio. High-tech reshoring, accelerated by the pandemic and associated supply chain nightmares, as well as the various incentives to quit China, moves to reshore hit a record high in 2021, and they seem to be gathering pace. In particularly strident move, the Biden administration has just barred all U.S. tech companies and the received government funding from building advanced tech 
facilities for the next decade. In a press briefing on 6 September, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo explained that the U.S. government will be implementing the guardrails to ensure those who receive CHIPS funds cannot compromise national security. They're not allowed to use the money to invest in China. They can't develop leading-edge technologies in China. They can't send the latest technologies overseas. Long process. Decoupling from the People's Republic won't happen overnight. However, with all systems go, the days of America heavily relying on China for critical products and supply chains are most definitely numbered. Oh, yay. Best article in a very long time. Oh, I'm so, so happy to hear this. I would say Tom Cotton should be applauding, if you have it in you, Tom, to applaud that Biden is continuing the good work. Regarding decoupling from China. Yay. We don't always hear a lot of vocal, so it's nice to hear what's actually happening at the desk, right? It's pretty great. There's always going to be a, 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 you know, a few throwback Republicans that would sell our own country out for their own profit. And I'm sure some Democrats, too. So those types I don't have any interest in. All right, about the economy. You're not worried about the economy. You're worried about your own wallet, and that's it. And we don't like you. No, we do not need to rely on China for your wallet. Thank you. John Power, UN report on Xinjiang ups pressure on brands like Tesla, Airbnb, Al Jazeera, August 31st. Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, a United Nations assessment that China's treatment of Uyghurs may amount to crimes against humanity is the latest damning report to raise pressure on multinationals like Nike and Tesla to rethink their operations in Xinjiang. In a long-awaited 45-page report released on Thursday, the UN High Commission for Human Rights uh, OHCHR uh, called on businesses in China, far western region, to take all possible measures to respect human rights, including through enhanced human rights due diligence. The OHCHR report released on last day of the rights called Chief Michelle Bachelet's Bachelet's term made particular mention of companies involved in security and surveillance recommending a strengthened human rights risk assessment for the sector. China's permanent Mission to the UN rejected the report of disinformation and lies fabricated by anti-China forces and out of presumption of guilt. The UN damning assessment comes after Tor- Tornova Abkata, UN Special Rapporteur on Slavery, said early this month that it was reasonable to conclude that forced labor was taking place in the region. Justine Nolan, an expert in the intersection between business and human rights at the University of South Wales, said the new report was meant no longer possible for any state, business, individual to have plausible deniability about the wide-ranging human rights abuses that have and are continuing to occur in Xinjiang. This poses a challenge for many companies who are continuing to source products from Xinjiang. Nolan told Algeza, adding that firms should assume their supply chains are tainted with modern slavery and should not be sourcing from the region unless they can disprove that. Pulling out of the region or factory should always be a last resort, but if simple, if simply pos- impossible to independently verify working conditions in your production facilities, then based on the report, a company should assume there are ongoing human rights abuses based on the production coming out of Xinjiang. 
not just there. Legal and reputational risks. Major international companies, including household brands such as Nike, Airbnb, Tesla, Siemens, Volkswagen, have faced blowback from the rights groups and Western governments in recent years for doing business in Xinjiang. A major producer of the global supply of cotton and polysilicon, key raw material for solar panels. A 2020 report by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Canberra based think tank, identified 82 international brands of benefiting from Uyghur labor. In June, U.S. Customs Authorities started enforcing Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which bans the import of goods from Xinjiang unless it can be proved that they were not produced using forced labor. Despite the sweeping scope of legislation, which some multinational companies and business groups opposed on the grounds that it would upend supply chains, U.S. officials have indicated that enforcement will be initially focused on four high-risk sectors, apparel, cotton, tomatoes, and polysilicon, as well as shipments campaigning, coming directly from Xinjiang and companies sanctioned using forced labor. <clears throat> China continues to dominate the global production of garments and textiles, and so the ply- supply chains of the many global brands have been marred by associations with Chinese forced labor, said Norlin, the US, UNSW expert. This is a problem not only for brands or direct production connection to factories and fields in Xinjiang. Julian Chaozis, an expert in investment and trade at the City of University of Hong Kong, says he expects further decoupling isolation between China and Western countries. Although many countries had started early 2018 to request their companies to perform higher due diligence, tighter due diligence on risk of doing business in Xinjiang, the UN reports is likely to going to require these countries to review Further tighten the due diligence obligations, Chase told Arjurisa. Practically, it means from a pure business angle that companies sourcing directly or even indirectly from Xinjiang or engaging in Xinjiang market will be scrutinized even more than before. They will be exposed to legal and reputational risks in their countries of origin. Besides targeting imports tainted by forced labor, the U.S. and other Western nations have in recent years also sanctioned dozens of Chinese firms, many of them tech companies such as Ikvision, Dahua, and, and produce surveillance technology for their alleged complicit, complicity in human rights violations in Xinjiang. Charles Roulette, an analyst of surveillance research group IPVM, said that while UN assessment might make some multinational companies think twice about starting operations in Xinjiang, it would have little effect on Chinese tech firms already working in the region. China is not like the U.S., where some companies or CEOs actively criticize certain government policies, Roulette told Algeriza. These risks assess, these risks arrest, retaliation against the company or both. People's Republic of China tech and surveillance firms are heavily involved in government surveillance already, so they have no real qualms with Xinjiang. While global brands such as Nike have pledged to beef up their auditing procedures against forced labor, international firms have nonetheless shown an appetite for maintaining and even expanding operations in the region. In January, Tesla and the Texas-based electric car maker came under fire from U.S. lawmakers and rights activists when it announced the opening of new showroom in Xinjiang. In June, Volkswagen's outgoing China CEO, Stephen Wilson, said the company's plan to keep making cars in the region and was open to a visit by company-nominated human rights specialist to its plant in the capital, Uramaqui. The German auto giant had repeatedly said that the operations not rely on forced labor and insisted that presence in Xinjiang has a positive impact. Nike, Airbnb, Volkswagen, Tesla, and Siemens have been contacted for comment. While coming under pressure for Operation Xinjiang, international brands that do acknowledge concerns about human li- human alleged human rights of violations risk invoking wrath of Chinese nationalists. 
Last year, Nike and fashion retailer HM faced boycotts by consumers, e-commerce sites, and celebrities in China after expressing concerns about allegations of forced labor in their supply chains. A Hong Kong-based trade lawyer who requested anonymity due to the sensitivity of the situation said firms operating in Xinjiang were in a bind. The UN reports it's likely to place additional pressure on companies like Tesla. Airbnb have already received negative publicity for their operations in Xinjiang. The lawyer said, I would su- suspect that whatever remaining companies are in Xinjiang will consider this report, balance the ESG reputational risks for continuing to do business with the backlash from Chinese government and the Chinese public for appearing discriminatory against China. Yep. Is there any more in China? Let's see. Nope. Okay, let's talk about the migrants, the migrants, the migrants. Still unclear to me, by the way, what is, what is and or are the tribes, Native American tribes on the borders of Arizona and Texas? If any on Texas, I don't know, but there is one on on um, Arizona border. What are they on their sovereign land experiencing in terms of migrant infiltration, fentanyl, violence, gangs, and people just looking for a better life? How are the tribes encountering them? What are the tribes experiencing? If they're right on the border, are they getting infiltrated? Are their reservations getting pilfered and infiltrated? We need to know these things. So nice to know what the tribe's experiences have been with the border crisis. Okay, this is Fox News. Nine nine migrants found dead at Texas border. 53 apprehended trying to cross Rio Grande. Luis Casinero Friday. Adam Shaw. Nine migrants who are trying to enter the U.S. have died and 37 others have been rescued after they tried to cross Rio Grande near Eagle Pass, Texas. Border Patrol agents in Del Rio sector, including Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue, Borstar, and Rev. Ryan agents, responded on Thursday to large groups of people near Eagle Pass, Texas, and apprehended 53 migrants. Customs and Borders Protections, CBP, Arab, and Marine officials also aided in the mission. 37 of the migrants were rescued as they tried to rock cross the Rio Grande in the U.S., Officials Friday said that agents had discovered eight dead migrants. On Saturday, CPB said the death toll had risen to nine. Three were found by Mexican authorities and another six by U.S. agents. Authorities have partnered with Eagle Pass Fire Department, Maverick County Sheriff's Office to search for other victims. Across the river, Mexican authorities took into custody another 39 people. The incident comes from migrants continued to approach the border in a dangerous fashion. 
in June. 53 migrants were found dead inside a tractor trailer in San Antonio, highlighting the same dangerous conditions many face as they try to cross the border illegally. The dead include 13-year-old and 14-year-old from Guatemala, two 16-year-olds from Mexico, U.S. Representative Tony Gonzalez, Republic of Republican of Texas, whose districts include much of the border, criticized Biden over the failure to visit the border since taking office in 2021. 53 dead in a truck, 53 in a river, countless dead in ditches, gullies, and deserts throughout hashtag Texas 23. How much more must die before Biden visits the border, he tweeted. As a form of protest, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has ordered busing of migrants to Washington, D.C., New York City, Chicago, in an effort to highlight how overwhelmed Texas border communities have become. As of Friday, more than 7,600 migrants have been transported to the three cities. President Biden's inaction or southern border continues putting the lives of Texans, the Americans, at risk and is overwhelming our communities, Abbott said in Wednesday out statement as migrants were being taken to Chicago. Yep, true. At the same time, Texas is being compensated financially for all of this busing. That was a late story not that long ago to show that it's not like they're going broke busing everybody out. They are getting compensated by the federal government for the money to do that. Okay. Tribe Arizona built... Did I already read this one? I don't think I did. Tribe, Arizona built border barrier against its wishes. Associated Press, Elliot, Elliot Spaggett, Friday. San, and San Diego, the Cocopa Indian Tribe, C-O-C-O-P-A-H, Cocopa. Indian Tribe said Friday of the state, Arizona acted against its wishes by stacking shipping containers on its land to prevent illegal border crossings. So I want to know from the Cocopa Tribe, how are you experiencing the border crisis in terms of infiltration, fentanyl, rapists, attackers, those are who are desperate to seeking a better life, good people, those seeking asylum, such a variety coming through, criminals, all of it, traffickers. How is the tribe experiencing this? The tribe determined that the state put 42 double stack containers on its land near Yuma, said Michael Fila from Office of Emergency Management. The tribe wrote the state officials to inform them of the findings and concerns. Fila said the containers block half of a two-lane road, closing a vital evacuation route. The containers pose other safety concerns, including if the containers fall. Fila said two containers toppled during construction last month for reasons that are unclear. It was the wind. It's clear. It was the wind. It was a storm. Stop. With it being unclear, it was a storm. <laughs> The integrity of the road itself had subsequently been damaged by the heavy machinery that was used in place by shipping containers and created the danger for the first responders to get stuck, Fila said in an email shared with the Associated Press. The tribe told state officials a meeting August 17th it didn't want the barriers and was waiting on a response to its finding, findings, said Jonathan Athens, Kokopoff spokesman. We had made it clear we did not want the containers on our land. The tribe's findings are potentially set back to Governor Doug Ducey, who said the last week that the barriers were a major step forward to secure a border. Despite its claims, the barriers have so far failed to make a meaningful dent in the illegal crossings in an area where hundreds have been entering the country daily. 
Juicy spokesman C. Kara Margin said Friday the governor's office was reviewing tribes' letters but had no immediate comment. The state installed 130 double-stack containers in Yuma area last month in an effort to close gaps by imposing wall during the Donald Trump's presidency that were incomplete. When he left office last year, the Biden administration said in July it would plug gaps, but the... They did. I didn't ever hear that, but okay. The Dowsey said they couldn't wait and hired Ashbrook Inc. to install shipping containers the length of 13 football fields in five areas. The containers said the tribes were installed on tribal lands extended to the desert, ending abruptly in the area where migrants can easily walk around it. The area includes rights ways of people outside the tribes to travel, which many have created confusion and said feel. In any case, the tribes say so the officials did not consult them before building. The episode of this reminder of obstacles the government faces with border barriers difficult to build on tribal land, most notably the Tohono Odom Nation in Arizona, and opposition from landowners, especially in Texas, where unlike other border states, much property is privately owned. Pri- migrants go around the walls. Okay. So, again, the Texas landowners are also a problem for the opposition of the wall. But what about the Tohono Odom Nation in Arizona? Do you have issues with migrant infiltration. We need to hear from you. Not just about the inconvenience and, uh, and annoyance and um, disrespect of the board of the shipping containers, but what is actually happening besides all that with the border crisis on your actual land? You know, silence isn't the answer right now. About half of encounters of migrants crossing the border illegally in the Border Patrol's Tucson, Arizona section are in the Tohono O'odham Nation, up from 20% to 30% before walls were built just outside the tribe's land, said John Moden, the sector chief. The Cocopa expressed strong opposition to a wall in the letter to U.S. officials in 2020, saying the barrier would cut across the river and tribal matters in Mexico. The tribe recently released a video showing the interim police chief, Arlene Martinez, outlining other cooperative measures with the border patrol such as surveillance cameras and ground sensors I don't know that surveillance cameras are going to be effective deterrent save that one for local news okay We'll try to do some environmental environmental news. The Doomsday Glacier holding on by its fingernails. Daily Mail. Sam Tonkin for Mail on Mail Monday. Antarctica's Doomsday Glacier is holding on by its fingernails. Antarctica's Thwaites Glacier is holding on by its fingernails, experts say. 
after discovering that it has retreated twice as fast as previously thought over the past 200 years. The West Antarctic Glacier was about the size of Florida and has been an important consideration for scientists trying to make predictions about global sea level rise. The potential impact of the retreat is huge because the total loss of Thwaites and its surrounding icy basins could raise global sea levels up by 10 feet. That's why it's widely nicknamed the Doomsday Glacier. If you imagine 10 feet, that would wipe out nearly two-thirds of Florida, New York, um, yeah, impact, I'm sure, Louisiana, Florida would be the most hit, possibly the islands as well. 10 feet is significant. For the first time, scientists mapped a high-resolution and critical area of seafloor in front of Thwaites that gives them a window into how fast the glacier has retreated and moved to the, into, in, the, in the past. The stunning imagery shows geological features that are new to science and are also provides a kind of crystal ball to see into the Thwaites, Thwaites' future, according to experts at the University of Southern Florida's College of Marine Science. The study suggests the glacier could see a big change over small timescales in the future. Alarmingly, analysis of new images indicates the rate of Thwaites recent that science has documented more recently is small compared to the fastest rates of change of the past. The team documented more than 160 paralleled ridges that were created, like a footprint, as the glacier's leading edge retreated and bobbed up and down with the daily tides. The Thwaites Glacier currently measures 74 1,131 square miles, around the same size as Great Britain. It's up to 4,000 meters thick and considered key in making projections of global sea level rise. The glacier is retreating in the face of the warming ocean and it's thought to be unstable because the interior lies more than two kilometers below the sea level, while the coast to the bottom of the glacier is quite shallow. The collapse of Thwaites Glacier would cause an increase of global sea level of between one and two meters, three and six feet which the potential for more than twice that from entire West Antarctic ice sheet. It's as if you're looking at a tide gauge on the seafloor, geophysicist Alistair Graham said. It really blows my mind how beautiful the data are. To understand Thwaites' past retreat, researchers analyzed the rib-like formation submerged just under half a mile beneath the polar ocean and factored in the tidal cycle for the region, as predicted by computer models to show the one rib must have been formed every single day. At some point in the last 200 years, over a duration of less than six months, the front of the glacier has lost contact with the seabed ridge and retreated at a rate of more than 1.3 miles per year, twice the rate documented using satellites between 2011 and 2019. Our results suggest the pulses of very rapid retreat have occurred at the Waits Glacier in the last two centuries, possibly as recently as the mid-20th century, Graham said. Marine geophysicist and study co-author Robert Larder from the British Antarctic Survey added, Thwaites is really holding today by its fingernails, and we should expect to see big changes over small timescales in the future, even from one year to the next, once the glaciers retreats beyond the shallow ridge of its bed. To collect the imagery and supporting geophysical data, the team, which included scientists from the U.S., U.K., and Sweden, launches a state-of-the-art orange robotic vehicle loaded with imaging sensors during the expedition in 2018. It mapped an area of the seabed in front of the glacier about the size of Houston, and did so extreme conditions during the unusual summer, notably for its lack of ice sheet, lack of sea ice. This allowed scientists to continue to access the glacier for the first time in history. 
This was a pioneering study of the ocean floor made possible by recent technological advancements in autotom, auto, autonomous ocean mapping and a bold decision by Wallenberg Foundation to invest into this research infrastructure, said Anna Wallen, a physical oceanographer from the University of Gothenburg who deployed RAN at the weights. The image RAN collected give us vital insights into the processes happening at critical junction between glacier and ocean today. Graham, who's called once-in-a-lifetime mission, said the team would like to sample the seabed sediments directly so they can more accurately date the rigid-like creatures. But the ice closed on us pretty quickly, and we had to leave before we could do that on the expedition he added. According to the UN, roughly 40% of the human population lives within 60 miles of the coast. This study is part of a cross-disciplinary collective effort to understand the Thwaites Glacier System Barrier better, said Tom Fraser, dean of the USF College of Marine Science. And just because of it's out of sight, we can't have Thwaites out of mind. This study is an important step forward in providing essential information to the informed global planning efforts. Planning efforts. Yep. Glaciers. So we've had a heat wave. Everybody has felt it in California. Even in San Francisco, we got up to the 90s. We've been feeling it too. Um, California activates emergency generators for the first time. KMPH, Fresno, Visalia, Ishisha, Padilla, Monday. The state of California has called on four emergency generators for the first time to help alleviate the power grid. California Independent System Operators has called on the Department of Water Resources of Roseville and Yuba City to activate the generators. According to ISO officials, generators can provide up to 120 megawatts to the power grid by using natural gas and special system that helps reduce emissions, limiting air quality impacts. This amount of megawatts can help power up to 120,000 homes. Officials say the generators were installed in 2021 for emergency use only in the case of wildfires, climate-driven energy emergencies, and extreme heat. DWR has been planning for this moment for months. We're proud to our role in safeguarding the statewide energy grid. We're doing everything possible to keep the lights on and the air conditioning running so millions of Californians can stay safe and healthy during the extreme heat event, said Carl Inimic, W DWR director. DWR has been planning for this moment for months. We're proud of our role in safeguarding the statewide energy grid. We're doing everything possible to help keep the lights on and air conditioning running so millions of Californians can stay where we read that. Okay. In the process of preparing for an emergency, DWR is partnering with PG&E to produce, install, operate dozens of backup generators. This plan is to only use them during a level two power emergency when declared by the ISO. During their extreme heat, PG&E program outages help conserve energy. Residents can find out when an outage might be scheduled in their area by visiting PG&E's site here. Well, I'm all for the generators, and I don't care if they're fossil fuels. Frankly, I think the fossil fuel generator idea is a great idea, as long as it's not the primary fuel. Oh, more border drama. I forgot to mention that one. Officials seized 47,000 rainbow fentanyl pills at the southern border. Let's see. I want to know if it's affecting the tribes, too. Come on, tribes. Full story, not a part of the story. Tyler Warnell, Monday, News Nation. Customs and Border Protections agents this weekend seized another 47,000 brightly colored fentanyl pills that officials warn are putting children in danger. The pills were seized at Nogales, Arizona, and port of entry of Saturday. Port Director Mike 
Michael W. Humphrey said on Twitter, another 186,000 blue fentanyl pills and six and a half pounds of methamphetamine were found in the floor compartment of a vehicle trying to pass through a land checkpoint. Drug Enforcement Administration recently instituted advisory about rainbow fentanyl pills with authorities are said meant to look like candy and are being used to target young Americans. Estimates put the number of fentanyl pills seized at the port entry of 4 million since the start of August. A rise in drug smuggling has worsened the ongoing U.S. opioid epidemic. Can't, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention started to release May that showed there were an estimated 107,622 drug overdose deaths in 2021, a jump of almost 15% from 2020, which was 30% higher the year before that. Fentanyl alone killed more than 70,000 people in, in 2021 and 57,000 in 2020. The day before Saturday's seizure, agents in the Nogales port found another 2,300 rainbow fentanyl pills along with the more than 25,000 traditional and dark blue pills in a pickup as well as 35,000 traditional pills in the air intake of a motorcycle. The pills have been making their way inland this year with the DEA making discoveries in 18 states. Florida Attorney General called on President Joe Biden to classify fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction and one sheriff in the state said the smuggling is making every town in America a border town. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Huge problem. The border will be the 2024 uh, issue for President debate. Yes. California governor signs the bill to keep the last reactors running. California governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation Friday intended to open the way for state's last operating nuclear power plant to run an additional five years. That would be Diablo Canyon, I believe. Is that not right? Well, then that's the nuclear one. To fight climate change, environmentalists may have to give up a core belief. For decades, environmentalists have been making their mark on stopping things. Petroleum facilities that spew toxic air pollution, pipelines that cut across indigenous lands, drilling for oil and gas. That is the Washington Post, by the way, Shannon Osaka. Climate change is about to change everything. To cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions to zero, experts said the country is going to have to do something environmentalists have traditionally opposed. Build a lot of energy infrastructure and fast. Right now, the many roadblocks stand in the way of building wind, solar, and the transmission lines that can carry their power to city centers. And while Democrats have a bill in the works to speed that sort of permitting, most environmentalists oppose it because it could also promote oil and gas development. We're going to have to build a lot more of any, everything clean, said Josh Fried, director of climate and energy in the center-left think tank, Third Way. The U.S. has an infrastructure building crisis. We no longer build anything big, let alone big and ambiguous. So it's a reasonable time frame. To reach net zero carbon emissions, according to study by Princeton University, wind farms will have to spread across the Great Plains and Midwest, covering an area equal to at least the state of Illinois and Indiana. Solar panels will spark across the area at least as large as Connecticut, and thousands of miles of high-voltage transmission lines will need to be built to carry all that power from where it's generated, mostly in rural parts of the country to urban centers far away. And these projects need to be up and running soon, according to the analysis by Decarb America Project. Solar and wind power in the U.S. will have doubled in the next just eight years. 
At the moment, however, a miasma of confusing regulations and local opposition have stymied many, many of these plans. Residents blocked the project to build wind farms off the coast of England for decades, complaining it would ruin their ocean views. A transmission line from Pennsylvania to Maryland was blocked by Pennsylvania landowners who argued that the land, the line wouldn't provide sufficient benefits to their state. Now a deal between Senator Joe Manchin III and Senate Democrat leaders could streamline energy permitting. During negotiations of the Inflation Reduction Act, a giant health and climate spending bill that passed the Congress in August, Democrats promised Manchin that they would pass a separate bill this fall to speed up permitting process for building energy infrastructure, both fossil fuel and clean. Some environmental groups have blasted their deal, arguing that would expedite a key priority of Manchin's, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, 300-mile pipeline, that would transfer national gas from West Virginia to Virginia and other fossil fuel projects. Prolonging the fossil fuel era perpetuates environmental racism, is widely out of step with climate science, and hamstrings our nation's ability to avoid a climate disaster. More than 650 environmental groups wrote in a letter sent to Congress in late August. Meanwhile, a group of Appalachian activists are planning a march on D.C., next week to protest the permit reform deal in the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Here's what President Biden's doing to tackle climate change, but energy experts argue that depending on the structure of the deal, permitting reform could help the U.S. switch over to clean energy and ultimately benefit renewables more than fossil fuels. For example, Lisa Reed, the research manager for electricity transmission at the center-right think tank, this can center argues that the building a more connected electrical grid is absolutely essential to cut carbon emissions. Wind and solar energy, she points out, are rarely located in the same place where power is needed. We need to build energy transmission very quickly and very dramatically, she said. There's no way, two ways about it. One thing that could help, Reed argues, is giving the federal government authority to approve the construction of big high-voltage transmission lines. At the moment, power lines have to get approval from every state as they cross, including states that may not benefit from much having much gigantic power lines weaving over their homes and buildings. Federal authorities would allow the government to rubber stamp transmission lines without getting into local and state regulatory morass. Romani Webb, a senior fellow at the Fabin Center for Climate Change Law, said that the law is critical in making sure that the communities aren't adversely affected by energy and pipelines. But she added, I do think there's ways to streamline NEPA process to make it work better for some of these large renewable energy projects. Green groups, however, still have reservations. Whatever the proposed project is, whether it's a pipeline or a highway or a solar farm, it should be subject to the same common-sense review process, Myhar Soar, a deputy legislative director for Sierra Club, said in an email. If we wanted projects to move forward faster, we shouldn't be weakening environmental laws. But investing more resources into the agencies and staff, it remains unclear exactly when the permitting bill will say and whether it will pass. It needs 60 votes under the Senate rules to pass, so some Republicans will have to get on board. And some Democrats may not vote for it, since any permitting reform agreement would also leave the door open to further fossil fuel extraction. The devil's in the deep details, Fried said. Without reform, though, many believe that the clean energy transition will not happen at the pace the country needs, but the shift will be a change for environmental movement that has spent decades learning to block, not build. It will require careful analysis of how to rapidly expand wind, solar, and even nuclear community input. With the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the environmental movement broadly has endorsed the building, Fried said. So now the question is how? Okay. How indeed. 
some good news to help paying water bills maybe on the way for low-income Californians. Tens of thousands of low-income struggle to pay their water bills. Legislator approved a bill offering assistance. But without funding, the program won't start this year. I'm just going to skim. Okay, what is the actual thing? So many agent water agencies are opposed to this program to help pay people pay their bills. Just like any other utilities that offer assistance, water is essential utility. It's deserving of well of a ratepayer assistance tax a ratepayer assistance program. So Darren Polemus. Yeah. But what is the qualifying low income? I wonder. Okay. Many local water systems operating the debt of their own. The tiny Kentua Greek system, for example, operating a forty thousand dollar negative. That does not what I'm looking for. What is the proposal? of the cap of okay they're just talking about debt i want to know how what their plan is oh this is just okay okay so they don't say i'm not going to read it if they're not going to say it so get back to me news about the water <laughs> Include an actual, like, bandwidth of what you consider low income in California, please. California could get one-time relief check for up to $1,050 in October. I got mine early, like a few hundred dollars. No, like a hundred fifty-ish. That's interesting. Form of inflation relief. Yep, you're going to get $1,050 in October not going to go into it because it's all relative of what you actually would get but look forward to a check i got mine today yesterday friday recently uh, Hildesburg families get guaranteed income. Sonoma County pilot program to your program provides guaranteed minimum income of $500 a month to 305 low income families in Hildesburg, Petaluma and Santa Rosa. That's great. Rushing through it. You know what? See if I can rush through this hydrogen. Scientists, scientists create green hydrogen fuel from thin air. According to a paper published on September 6th in the journal Nature Communications, a green hydrogen is produced by electrolyzing the humidity in the air. Rather than traditional liquid. This is just Thompson Newsweek, Tuesday. According to a paper published, okay, I already read that, traditional liquid water, which may have allowed for provision of hydrogen fuel to dry in remote regions with a minimal environmental impact. 
especially if using renewable energy, the paper's authors have been able to electrolyze the air's water and humidity as low as 4%. 4%. We have developed a so-called direct air electrolyzer, in short, DAE. Gang, Gang Kevin Lee, Senior Lecturer in Department of Chemical Engineering. This module uses a hygroscopic electric exposed to the atmosphere constantly. Such electrolyte has a high potential to extract moisture from the air, spontaneously making it readily available for electrolyte and hydrogen production once coupled with a renewable power supply. Electrolysis has traditionally been used to only gather hydrogen and oxygen from liquid water, placing two electrodes in the water and running electrical current through it. Okay, anyway, we're not going to go into all the nitty-gritty, but the more I like... The more I learn about hydrogen, the more I'm like, pro-hydrogen, no electric cars, everything hydrogen. We'll go over it again next episode in more detail. Thanks.